0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
3: This is a CBC Podcast.
4: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
3: Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Tonight.
4: Getting the word out to get them out. A Canadian-Palestinian is pleading for the government to help her family get out of Gaza by granting special immigration permissions, just as they did for Ukrainians.
3: Parting message or partisan message? For the second time this year, the House of Commons is ringing with calls for the Speaker to resign after he praises a liberal friend in terms critics say are more political than personal.
4: Sash and burn. The situation is not pretty in Nicaragua, where organizers of a beauty pageant are now in trouble with the authorities who claim they conspired against the regime.
3: Burnt out. After a historic wildfire season, dozens of fire chiefs head to Ottawa calling for more support. So they're more prepared for what's to come in the years to come.
4: Chick chick boom kiwis the birds are synonymous with kiwis the humans who live in New Zealand which is why human kiwis are so thrilled at the arrival of the first bird kiwis to be born in the wild in Wellington in more than a century.
3: And accident prawn in Indonesia scientists inadvertently stumble upon a whole new genus of shrimp that live on land and in trees And we can't wait to learn more about the little scampy. I mean, scamps. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that appreciates their effort to branch out. The United Nations says there is no safe place left in Gaza. Today in the south, Israel launched its most intense ground invasion yet. The UN says more than 80% of Gaza's population has been driven from their homes since the conflict began, and they're being squeezed into the increasingly small and increasingly dangerous area in the south. Israel Safin is a Canadian citizen. Other members of her family are not. Last night on the show, you heard Ms. Al Safin speaking at an NDP press conference in Ottawa, pleading with the government to expand its rules of eligibility for who it will help get out of Gaza. Her family is currently sheltering in Rafah, but can't cross the border because they're not Canadian citizens. We reached Israel Safin in Ottawa.
4: Isra, when is the last time you were able to speak with your family? Uh, over the phone
5: uh, since a couple of days, I guess, Saturday. I did not hear from them yesterday until this morning at 3 a.m. They had a chance to send me a text that they are fine. And another voice note that urging me to get them out of there.
4: And what did they say?
5: Uh, It was not the best thing anybody wants to hear it. My sister was telling me that They are trying to find a way to cross the borders, and someone asked them for a $10,000 USD to do do that arrangement for them. Smugglers. Yeah. And I can't tell her, like, don't don't try it because I'm not in their shoes. Uh, And um, she was telling me that they can't access the bank account right now, and if I can, send them that money. And then she started panicking and crying while talking in the voice note. There was a sound of explosions around her. The only thing she was saying at the end, it's really bad. It's really, really bad. Please get us out of here.
4: What do you, what can you possibly say when you hear something like Um, that? I did not know what
5: to tell her. Um, Time is ticking, and unfortunately, our political uh, parties or government or whoever have the decision in saving them or stopping the bombing are really relaxed while taking that decision.
4: Immigration Minister Mark Miller was asked about this earlier today we'll play a little bit of, of what he had to say in answer to questions uh, about the requests the pleas from families such as yours let's listen to that
3: we have tried our utmost whenever there's a configuration of, of a family unit that doesn't fall within our, our current definitions to be as flexible as possible
4: what is that mean as flexible as possible
3: uh, being as flexible as possible, meaning looking at what family, what what people in Gaza have family connections to Canada. Obviously, the priority is uh, is Canadian citizens, permanent residents. That has been a challenge. It remains a challenge and remains the focus of the government.
4: Is that an explanation you can live with right now? No.
5: No, because the um, I have contacted, by the way, the SOS, and I asked them to get my family out of there. And we got the same um, template answer that your family is not under the defined category of um, uh, immediate family, which is the current definition is only spouse or kids. My father, which is the grandfather of my kids here, is an immediate family. My siblings are an immediate family. My mother is an immediate family my nephew who lost his dad my my he's a baby he's 10 months old and living this situation is an immediate family i can't i can't imagine that anyone in the world will be fine living normally while his parents or and his siblings just living in this situation
4: there were Uh, listeners will remember, and you may as well, special rules in place uh, for for Syrian, Ukrainian and Afghan refugees. Is that what you're hoping for?
5: Yes, I am the first person was with the fact that, yes, we should evacuate people from Ukraine. We should help Ukrainian people. But it's really hurt me deeply when I'm now in the same positions Some of them, I don't want to like point names, but some of the people that were asking for the Ukrainian people to be evacuated now, telling me that I should not ask this. And you and your family are a bunch of terrorists. And we don't want Gaza, Gaza people to come to Canada because they're dangerous. I have been living here since 2012. And everything I did is not... Less than any other Canadian did to this country. I worked hard. I am paying my tax as everybody else. I'm a skilled worker. I'm raising my kids to be the perfect Canadian for this country. How now I am treated this way? How fair. And if you are scared that you want to do some checkups on people coming here, yes, I know. I understand. All I want is. Do whatever checkups you want on them, and then bring them here. They are at the least point of Gaza Strip. The next point in front of them is the borders. How are they going to survive? Where should they go?
4: Where are they sheltering right now?
5: In a storage room.
4: In a storage room? In
5: a storage room. It's not meant for a human being to live in. They have... 50 other families with them in the same room there's no clean water there's no enough food just thinking about they don't have the basic minimum for a human being to live and yet i have to wait patiently here counting the second by second to what and wondering what they're doing now are they safe it's is the bombing happening right now around them All of that, it just doesn't make sense to me right now.
4: Minister Miller, you know, as we heard a moment ago, he talked about flexibility. The government is trying to be flexible. But in those comments, he he also said that, that part of the problem is that a Canadian visa is not enough to get people out of Gaza and into Egypt. What's your response to that explanation?
5: Well, I know that Australia did it. And I know people had left Gaza to Egypt, and they, did, they continue the, the steps in Egypt, and now they're in Australia. So I think it's doable. If there is enough willing to pressure people on the borders to allow civilians to leave, they will be able to do it.
4: Why do you think it's not happening more quickly?
5: I have no idea. I don't want to think in a bad way, but since 1948, the whole world had failed Palestine so many times, so many times. My grandfather lived that disappointment by by had by had him or forced him to leave his village with his 2-years-old daughter running for safety. And by my father When he was forced to live in a refugee camp in gaza strip growing up in an awful conditions he went up out out to egypt and he had a degree in mathematics and he wanted to work around the world and he built a future for us but unfortunately he had to go back to there because you're a palestinian you're not wanted anywhere and now i'm living the same tragedy and i came to canada just because i was looking for this equality that i want to be heard i want to be seen and i want i want to build a future for my kids too but now i'm living the same disappointment it's you're not a human enough i have to work hard to to prove i'm a good person to prove that i'm worthy for your support why i actually help the government here when they bring the Syrian refugees and they wanted the people to speak Arabic and English, mm-hmm. I was the first one there to volunteer. I did that with the Ukrainian people. And now it's just a lot to me to ask to save the families there. What do you tell your own children? Part of making this hard is my children here. It's really hard to explain what's happening to them because they're mind and brains are not developed yet to understand all of that and all of my saying that everybody's heart it's doing their job everybody is trying their best to um, uh, stop the killing but you know what my son what, what he did recently he stopped standing up for the national anthem in his school and this is a big deal for me too and I went to talk to him and he's like mom they said never again they said canada should help people why they're not helping people in gaza i'm not going to do it until they help he's 10 years old i did not w- i did not know what to tell him and by the way i'm following with a therapist for with with him and his brother since my brother passed away but we ha- we are under a lot of big complex emotions that sometimes I feel it's overwhelming even to support my, my own son. And, and, and me, myself, trying to understand what's going on around the, the world, it's different, difficult on me. Imagine his 10 years old brain. He is really angry. And all of his thinking, like, why? Because as a kid visited his uncle two years ago, two summers ago, he's like, he was the nicest uncle to me. We had a lot of fun. Why they did take him away from us? It's a lot of questions that I don't have answers for.
4: I hope Isra that you that you get answers for your family soon. I'm very sorry you're all going through this. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
3: We reached Isra Al Safin in Ottawa, and you can read more about that story on our website, CBC.ca/slash AIH. Claims about rigged elections are a dime a dozen these days, but politicians saying they've been targeted by a rigged beauty pageant, that is an exciting reboot. This story started a few weeks ago when Shainis Palacios of Nicaragua won the Miss Universe pageant. She's the first Central American woman to win the title, and her victory sent flag-waving crowds into the streets. But in the corridors of power, the Nicaraguan government is not celebrating. On Friday, police laid charges of treason against the family that runs the Miss Nicaragua pageant, which Ms. Palacios won on her way to becoming Miss Universe. They claimed the competition was fixed as part of an elaborate conspiracy against the Ortega regime, which has held power for decades. Mary Beth Sheridan covered the story for The Washington Post, where she serves as bureau chief for Mexico and Central America. We reached her in Mexico City.
4: Mary Beth, of all the things that beauty pageants are, are usually criticized for, uh, anti-government conspiracies, in my experience, not at the top uh, of that list. So what is it about this pageant and this beauty queen in particular that has upset or spooked the Nicaraguan government?
0: Yeah, it's a pretty crazy story, uh, Neil. What happened in this case was uh, Miss Nicaragua won the Miss Universe pageant mm-hmm. And uh, Nicaraguans uh, just poured into the streets in happiness. You know, it's a country that's been under quite a bit of political oppression. The economy is dismal and uh, people were overjoyed. But the uh, they carried the Nicaraguan flag, which uh, is a jailable offense to be waving that in Nicaragua because it's seen as the symbol of the opposition. And the mere fact that hundreds or thousands of people poured into the streets, uh, people are not allowed to demonstrate in Nicaragua. So I think that unnerved the government. And then the second thing was the day after she won, people began to find old photos from her Facebook account from 2018, showing that she took part in these mass anti-government
4: protests
0: mm-hmm. that uh, threatened to take down the government until they were repressed.
4: And she hasn't made any overtly political statements, though, on the, on the pageant circuit or at Miss Universe?
0: No, but I think that people see her as kind of a symbol of Uh, Nicaraguan pride. Uh, And it's interesting, like she wore a gown with a long light blue cape, which is one of the colors of the flag that, you know, protesters use. She's talked about her Catholic faith. The Catholic Church has been really repressed by this government. And I think she's kind of a a woman who had a humble upbringing. She put herself through college by selling these homemade donuts. So I think people identify with her as the symbol of Um, Everything good about Nicaragua.
4: She hasn't been charged with anything, the Miss Universe winner, we we should say. On Friday, though, police made accusations against the family that runs the Miss Nicaragua pageants in particular. So what are authorities saying that family did?
0: Right. It's kind of wild. Basically, the police have accused uh, this woman uh, named Karen Celeberti. She's a former beauty queen who runs the Miss Nicaragua contest. Uh, They've accused her, her husband, and their son of setting up Miss Nicaragua as a sort of covert project in which they would recruit government opponents and groom them to become Miss Nicaragua and become high-profile figures. The family is now being accused of everything from treason to financing terrorism because of the alleged to create anti-government beauty queens.
4: And are they are there bringing forward any evidence that you've seen as you've as you've covered this story to back up their allegations?
0: So the only thing they said is they raided the home of the husband and son of this former beauty queen who runs Miss Nicaragua and they said they found messages on their cell phones to back up these allegations.
4: What might the implications be for this family and by extension Miss Universe?
0: Right. Well, this woman, Karen Celeberti, the one who runs Miss Nicaragua, had been returning to her country after the Miss Universe pageant and was not allowed entry. So she is currently in Mexico. Her husband and son were detained by police. There's no word of uh, where they are. But the government has jailed all kinds of opponents, ranging from opposition politicians to priests to journalists. So... I do think this family faces a pretty difficult scenario. Miss Universe is currently living in New York, Mm -hmm. so she herself has not been affected, but I think there are concerns among many Nicaraguans that, in effect, she's sort of being muzzled in, in the sense that she still has family back in Nicaragua, and clearly she
4: wouldn't want anything to happen to them. And she hasn't commented on, on any of this uh, that that we've seen. Has the Miss Universe organization said anything? No, I reached out to them for comment, and they they didn't have any mm. anything to say. What does it suggest to you about the state of mind of the Ortega government? Uh, you know, they've been cracked down, certainly. But again, we're talking about a beauty pageant here. Whether the threats are real or perceived, what's the state of mind in that administration?
0: Yeah, I think this is really a sign of how paranoid they are they have really managed to either imprison or drive into exile practically any source of criticism whether it's politicians whether it's catholic priests so that a beauty queen would be so concerning indicates how nervous they are that the population could still rise up at some point and I think it's interesting because while, you know, it sounds a little crazy, she is this interesting figure in that she's somebody who I think a lot of Nicaraguans relate to because of her humble origins, her success story. So you can see in Nicaragua, people have tried to paint murals of her or write songs that are going viral. So she is quite popular and has a lot of legitimacy.
4: Do you think that this could lead to to something bigger?
0: You know, the government has been very successful in jailing, arresting, exiling, really any uh, of opposition. Now, this really does raise the question of whether citizens do get to the point where they're so fed up that if they see this sign of hope that perhaps it could be a rallying image. Although I, I do think it's going to be difficult given the very repressive state of Nicaragua.
4: Mary Beth, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Great to be with you, Neil.
3: Mary Beth Sheridan is the Washington Post's bureau chief for Mexico and Central America. We reached her in Mexico City. It's not just New Zealand's national bird. In many ways, it's also a national symbol and a nickname for New Zealanders at home and abroad. So it may come as a surprise that the Kiwi population has had a bit of a rough go. Today, there are about 70,000 of the birds left in New Zealand, down from the millions that roamed the country in the 1800s. Conservationists attribute that decline in numbers to an increase in predators, like stoats. But now there's reason for hope. In the past week, four Kiwi hatchlings have been discovered, not in a wilderness park, but in the area around Wellington, New Zealand's capital city. Paul Ward is the founder and lead of the Capital Kiwi Project. We reached him in Wellington.
4: Paul, are, are New Zealanders flipping out right now? Uh, the news about these four chicks?
6: Yeah, well, like Canadians, we, we're quite laid back, but um, <laughs> but yeah, we're doing the um, the New Zealand Canadian version of, of backflips and <laughs> high fives and uh, fist bumps. So yeah.
4: How long has it been since Kiwi were seen in Wellington specifically?
6: So, um, we, we don't exactly know But the, um, the best guess is it's around 150 years Since, uh, since, since Kiwi have uh, um, hatched in the wild um, in, in Wellington, which is our capital city
4: Hence, hence the backflips uh, and high-fives, etc right. How did you find out that, that these four chicks had hatched? The Kiwi egg is, is huge it's about, it's about the
6: same size as an ostrich egg or an emu egg okay. um, But obviously the, the adult bird is a lot smaller and so once the mum um, lays the egg, it's, it's looked after um, by the dad. So um, uh, it kind of uh, the dad does uh, most of the incubating or, or, or the egg sitting. And so how we find out um, where the nests are is by um, monitoring um, the adult, adult male birds. When they shift from their everyday behaviour to sitting on eggs, uh, we, we can detect when that is and then we know uh, when the eggs are due to hatch. And... Uh, We've got uh, several several uh, burrows uh, on the go currently, um, and these are these are the first uh, the first eggs to hatch, and hopefully the first of many.
4: So you knew that this this was coming. How many more could come?
6: Well, we've got uh, potentially uh, another nine or ten birds sitting on eggs, so but they're only the birds that we're monitoring out of the sixty birds that are sixty. Well, actually, sixty three um, were translocated, and now there's uh, if we're Including the chicks, we're up to sixty-seven now. So there are likely uh, many, many more eggs um, hatching or due to hatch um, out on the hills.
4: I've seen some photos. I think they're they're kind of adorable, interesting, intriguing for sure. How would you describe what they look like? Uh,
6: so um, yeah, the, the, those photos of the chicks, which which you can mm. um, actually they are on the cover of the New York Times uh, <laughs> uh, yesterday. No
4: big deal. Are, um,
6: are actually uh, incredibly adorable and. And uh, perhaps not so helpful in our, um, uh, what, what we're trying to do is reconnect people with how kind of tough and gnarly the adult we <laughs> are. But, um, but yeah, there, there, there's no question that these chicks are, uh, are um, uh, cute.
4: <laughs> I think there was one quote but, uh, in that article that they're like, uh, they look like avocado on legs. I don't you're,
6: know. you probably slightly misleading because they're quite big in adult birds. So it's probably <laughs> like a rugby ball with, uh, with, if you put like dinosaur feet <laughs> on a rugby ball and then gave it chopsticks <laughs> for a bill. And wrapped it in uh, in fur. That would be yeah. something like what a kiwi looks like. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, tell us about the work that you and your colleagues have been putting in to, to get to this point, to get their numbers up.
6: Yeah. So, so the reason why this is uh, this is so significant as a milestone um, is that it re- represents a huge amount of work over many years from um, from the community of Wellington, and that's our um, our iwi uh, partners. That's our um, the Indigenous people. Which is our, our local Māori um, tribes and also the gifting iwi who have provided the kiwi that have been returned. Um, it's over 100 uh, landowners and, um, and then the communities of, uh, of people near where the kiwi have been released. So it's, yeah, five or six years' work. And, you know, as I said, the kiwi um, were around in their millions uh, until the end of the 19th century when uh, stoats, stoats started to have an impact on them. So, stoats are an introduced uh, predator. Um, in, here in New Zealand they are um, from the mustelid family so um, uh, weasels, stoats, polecats, ferrets and our native birds have evolved without um, mammalian, um, mammalian threats so that they're especially vulnerable um, uh, to those introduced predators so, so like I said kiwi have an enormous egg so as a design feature it's actually relatively robust at that stage and, and the, the adult bird will, will defend a burrow um, and then, as an adult, they're um, they're quite big birds, and they can fight off um, with their big uh, dinosaur claws uh, most threats. But where where they're especially vulnerable is in between hatching and and yeah. getting up to that fighting weight.
4: So, how are you and, going to monitor them? You know, the excitement over the hatching is one thing, adorable pictures, yes, but then that critical and dangerous phase you mentioned before they get to their that's right. their fighting form. Uh, so, what what are you going to do in the interim to keep them? Safe. So
6: we, we have the most intensive uh, stoke trapping network in the country in that landscape to give them the, the best chance um, possible for them to, get, to that, get up to that weight. And so um, we, we won't be reporting on individual birds because our goal is to, is to grow a population of birds. You know Kiwi are a, an enormous part of our um, yeah. identity and an animal that's had a had, had a magnetism they're important to our maori in the maori world and um, and uh, they've become um, a symbol of our army of our sports teams and you know of, of ourselves as people as, as we um, travel in the world and so we've we've got this i guess this kind of duty of 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 guardianship um, mm. to look after that icon and uh, we've got uh, one of the, uh, Comaswa older people in, in, uh, one of the project areas that, that we work in said, if, you know, if we can't look after the, the animal that's gifted us so much in terms of our identity, then we, we probably need to be renamed idiots. So, <laughs> so it's, um, it's, yeah, it's a, those Kiwi chicks hatching are, uh, it's a thank you to that community of effort that, um, delivered it. And it's also a, a challenge to continue those acts of guardianship going forward.
4: A pleasure speaking with you, Paul. Thank you, and congratulations. Thank you very much.
3: Paul Ward is the founder and lead of the Capital Kiwi Project. We reached him in Wellington, New Zealand. Greg Fergus is the Speaker of the House of Commons. and Today, some of his speaking has made him the centre of controversy. This past weekend, a video of Mr. Fergus was shown at the Ontario Liberal Leadership Convention as part of a tribute to outgoing interim provincial Liberal leader, John Fraser. Uh, we had a lot of fun together uh, through the Ottawa South Liberal Association, uh, through Liberal Party politics, by helping Dalton McGinty get elected. This was really uh, a seminal part in my life. And when I think of the opportunities that I have now as being speaker of the House of Commons, it's because of people like John and Linda, especially you, John. Now, John Fraser might have been touched, but the federal conservatives and the Bloc Québécois consider it more of a slap. They say the video constitutes a breach of the impartiality required of the speaker, and they are calling on Mr. Fergus to resign. Andrew Shear is the Conservative House leader and a former speaker. Today he introduced a motion calling for the matter to be referred to the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. We reached Mr. Shear in Ottawa earlier today.
4: Andrew Shear, Greg Fergus says that that video was meant to be a tribute to a personal friend, one that he says he thought would be played during a, quote, intimate party. He has since apologized. That clearly has is not enough for you, that apology. Why not?
1: Well, uh, imagine that you, uh, you're you the defendant in a court case and you see the judge in his robes at the Crown Prosecutor's House socializing. I mean, it wouldn't really matter what the context was. You would just want a different judge to hear your case. And the, the Speaker of the House of Commons every day has to make rulings and has to make decisions. And so we expect the Speaker to be impartial, to avoid any signs of Partisanship or favoritism. Uh, he chose to participate in in an event, and he and he put on his 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 speaker robes to to record the message. And now members of parliament have to now uh, you know have have the belief that he's going to be impartial, and it's just it's just not credible. So is so it is
4: it about where it was played, what he was wearing, or what he said?
1: He was introduced to the Liberal Convention as the Speaker of the House of Commons. He was wearing his speaker's uniform to deliver the message. He was in his speaker's office to record the message at a hyper-partisan event, uh, at a leadership election. So, you know, it's 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 incumbent upon the speaker to go above and beyond to avoid any kinds of partisanship. If you listen to his message, he's he's talking about Liberal Party activism. He's talking about uh, helping Dalton McGuinty get elected. You know, he's not just talking about personal characteristics of, of John Frazier. He,
4: he also does talk about their 30-year friendship uh, in that short video. If this were a conservative event and all of the other factors were exactly the same, would you have the same objections?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think the, the Speaker of the House of Commons should participate in conventions or Partisan meetings or anything, especially not wearing their official uniform and being introduced as the Speaker of the House of Commons. And let's keep in mind, too, that Greg Fergus became Speaker immediately Mm -hmm. having been the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister, a very partisan role. He had to defend the prime minister against corruption uh, charges and all kinds of scandals. He participated in filibusters at committee the, when Justin Trudeau elbowed Ruth Ellen Brousseau in the chest. But, the but every, every
4: speaker, including yourself, comes from, from a, a partisan and political background. Yeah,
1: but, but, but the point is that he, he he went from all of those roles immediately into becoming speaker. And so there was no, t- like uh, myself, I was the assistant deputy speaker and then the deputy speaker. I mm. had years of uh, service to the House in a nonpartisan role to establish that credibility, uh, that I could be impartial in the chair. Other speakers have done similar things. He came into the role immediately having been a hyper-partisan. And then just a few weeks into the job, uh, records this video. So it, it's, just, it's just asking members too much to see him in those robes, delivering that partisan message, to just ignore all that, and say, okay, well, you know, we'll just... Mm -hmm. take your word
4: for it. Mr. Fergus took over this job, as our listeners will certainly remember, and you will as well, uh, after the resignation of the previous speaker, Anthony Rota. He was forced to step down after recognizing a Ukrainian who fought along the Nazis. So with your calls and your concerns, are you in any way suggesting what Mr. Fergus did is on par with those actions?
1: Uh, I wouldn't want to make comparisons between the two. Uh, you know, we're dealing with the situation that we have in front of us. There are, uh, you know, there's a very clear, longstanding precedent that speakers do not participate in partisan activities. Uh, many speakers ago decided to not even go to caucus meetings. Uh, speakers don't go to conventions. They don't attend fundraisers for other members of parliament. So that's the situation we're dealing with.
4: And you never did an, any of those things in your time.
1: Uh, I I did not do partisan activities outside of my own uh, riding as as it led up to the general election. Certainly never participated in any kind of uh, political convention.
4: What if it were a case that he he did record a video for for a friend, but he didn't realize it was going to be used at at that convention in that way? Would that assuage any of your concerns?
0: He's
1: still wearing his robes. Uh, giving a partisan tribute about partisan activities. Look, if if, if he was in in his house in, in jeans and a sweater, and he was talking about the personal characteristics of John Fraser as a human being, you know, you know we, we might be having a different conversation. But he decided to talk about their partisanship together, their work on Delta McGinty's leadership campaign in his speaker's robe, being recorded in in his office. So uh, once once members of Parliament see that, we can't unsee it, and we have to have trust in him. There, there is no ability for members of Parliament to appeal one of his rulings. There's no uh, mechanism to, to to, vote on what he says.
4: What would you say to listeners who are hearing your arguments but feel your motivations are political and that there isn't a deep issue here?
1: I believe your listeners will understand that when you're in a position where you have to trust a mediator or an arbitrator or a judge, that that person just must avoid any any links to partisanship or bias, and, and and that's what we're dealing with.
4: You introduced a motion calling for this matter to be referred to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee today. Uh, do you think the committee is going to come up with a decision in the end that will satisfy you and your party?
1: Uh, we hope so. I, I should point out to your listeners that the Bloc Québécois have also called mm-hmm. for the resignation of uh, Speaker Fergus. That alone puts the Speaker in a very difficult uh, position, I, and I hope... I hope he reflects on that. Um, we we will be recommending to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee that they report back demanding a resignation.
4: The NDP have called for, for the committee to review it uh, as well. If it doesn't end in a resignation, is there any other resolution that you would be able to, to go along with?
1: Well, uh, you know that's what we're focused on now. We're, we're work the work with the committee process. Should this motion pass the House, and it looks like like it likely will sometime today or tomorrow, and uh, we'll be making our case to the committee members.
4: Andrew Shear, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
3: Andrew Shear is the Conservative House Leader. We reached him in Ottawa earlier today. When MPs in New Zealand reopen Parliament, it's traditional for politicians to swear an oath of allegiance to the head of state, currently King Charles III, of course. But when it was their turn, a group of Indigenous MPs from the Te Maori Party opted for an approach that was both traditional and unorthodox. They were elected alongside a new government that says it plans to review affirmative action policies and roll back use of the Maori language. So, when it came time for their oaths, a handful of indigenous politicians opted to first pledge allegiance to their ancestors, Maori practices, and the Maori version of the country's founding treaty. Then they performed a haka, a ceremonial Maori dance. Here's Te Pati Maori co leader Rawari Waititi delivering his pledge earlier today. I, Rawiri Waititi, swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to our Mugopuna. According to Tikanga Maori, I will perform my functions and duties and exercise my powers in accordance with the title of Waitangi sound of the day, New Zealand MP and pati Maori co-leader Rawiri Waititi performing a haka and an alternative Pledge of Allegiance in the Wellington Parliament before swearing his allegiance to King Charles III. They're the ones who respond to alarms, but this week, 40 fire chiefs from across Canada are in Ottawa to sound the alarm. They're gathering in the capital near the end of a historic wildfire year. Millions of hectares of land were scorched. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians were ordered to evacuate their communities. Some lost their homes. And smoke drifted far and wide, making it hard to see and breathe. Ken McMullen is the fire chief of Red Deer, Alberta. He's also the president of the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs. He's part of this group in Ottawa this week, and that is where we reached him.
4: Ken, this meeting happens every year, but in 2023, when 40 fire chiefs gather in one room, how are you all feeling?
7: I think that the term burnout is a word that best describes the individuals that have been involved in the fire season of 2023. We have the chiefs from West Kelowna, we have the chiefs from Halifax, two communities of many that were heavily hit by the wildfires of 2023.
4: They're carrying their own burnout, but also of their members. Most certainly, uh, I think
7: any leader uh, in organizations carry the weight of the men and women of which they represent. And the fire service saw, as you alluded to, um, a fire season like we've never seen before. And an average year of fires in uh, Canada will burn about two point three million hectares of land. The fire of twenty. 23, which I will remind you is still burning today, has consumed over 18 million hectares of land. Uh, These are numbers that we uh, Mm -hmm. would never have expected, and unfortunately, uh, it doesn't look much better for the fire season of 2024.
4: Apart from that just staggering scale that you describe, how did the job of a firefighter change in 2023, practically speaking?
7: When you think about the calls for service, calls for service in wildfires started earlier in the fire season than we've ever had before, and it was the number of calls for assistance that we've never seen before and for durations of time longer than we've seen before. This country has 126,000 firefighters made up of career, composite and volunteer firefighters. The volunteer system in Canada has been around for centuries and it works most of the time when we got called the fire seasons like the one of 2023 when we were asking men and women to leave their places of employment their personal responsibilities their own employment for days and weeks and months at a time they've done it because that's what the duty asked of them however it's not sustainable communities can't sustain having volunteer firefighters continue to go out for days on end and quite simply, individuals can't sustain going out on wildfires as a volunteer firefighter for days on end. So it's it's data like this that we bring to our elected officials to highlight the importance of some of the recommendations that we are asking, and uh, that is what our goal is over the next two days here in Ottawa.
4: I, I want to ask you about specifically what, what you're asking for in just a moment, but when we talk about this idea, and you know, any any... Any strapped industry or company will will have heard this this phrase uh, and I'm sure it it comes up for for you and your teams as well, you know, fewer people doing more or doing more with less when we talk about, in that context, equipment and things like that for firefighters across this country. What are the, the themes that are emerging or the realities that you're hearing as you compare notes and experiences?
7: Well, you're absolutely correct in just a couple of the examples that you shared there, and we can speak about equipment. The cost of equipment is rising, and I can give you an example of the cost of fire trucks. The cost of fire trucks have increased up to 30%. And so what that does is it forces municipalities to use equipment for longer than they would either like to or what industry standards would say is an acceptable use for frontline apparatus. It speaks to our ask of the federal government to consider re-implementing the Joint Emergency Preparedness Program, formerly known as JEP, which was in existence through the federal government up until 2013, at which time they indicated that the program had met its objective and stopped funding the JEP program. Well, unfortunately, it was very obvious uh, within months that that gap uh, was going to exist. Our fire departments need those now more than ever for things like equipment and training.
4: You want the federal government to be proactive rather than reactive. Apart from what you've just listed there, what are the other specific recommendations?
7: We're asking the uh, the, uh, federal government to consider increasing the volunteer firefighter tax credit. Currently, a volunteer firefighter is exempt for taxes for up to $3,000 annually for any monies earned in the performance of their duties as a volunteer. We're asking that to increase to $10,000 annually. I talked about the Joint Emergency Preparedness Mm -hmm. Program. We're asking to uh, continue to support and fund the Joint Emergency Preparedness Program. And lastly, and one might suggest most importantly, as it ties many of these together, is we're asking the government to consider forming a National Fire Administration Japan, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, all are similar-sized countries that utilize a national uh, advisor-type position, and Canada is now uh, ready more than ever for this position to be created within our federal government system.
4: I, I get the clear sense that you want this the, the fact that 2023 was the way it was in terms of wildfires to be a wake-up call for officials. That's the sense I'm getting clearly from you, but... but do you think that at the end of these two days, you're actually going to get some concrete answers and change?
7: We've come to learn that uh, it takes time. We are often, uh, as a fire service, the ones that do not come with hat in hand. We do not sound the alarm. We do not like to raise concerns. Uh, we are supposed to be the calm voice of reason when we're dealing with emergencies. Unfortunately, the time has come where we do have to sound the alarm. We believe that these are non-partisan type issues and should not be made as political issues. They should just be made for the good uh, of all Canadians that rely on the 126,000 firefighters in this country.
4: I appreciate your time, Ken. Thank you. Thanks so
3: much. Ken McMullen is the Red Deer Emergency Services Chief and the President of the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs. He's in Ottawa. A red dress alert system is one step closer to becoming a reality. This month, consultations began on the system, which could be similar to Amber Alerts for children. But in this case, it would notify the public if an Indigenous woman, girl, or two-spirit person went missing. NDP MP Leah Gazan is helping lead the consultations. We reached her in Winnipeg.
4: Leah Gazan, our listeners will certainly be familiar with the sound from their phones when there's an emergency alert or an Amber Alert. How do you envision the Red Dress Alert system working?
8: Well, we're just in uh, initial stages of consultation right now, preliminary stages. I think what it looks like in the end will be a reflection of what kind of information we're getting from advocates and family members and other organizations that are working on the front lines of these issues I know that we're hoping for something similar to the uh, amber alert, but of course, you know, there's other considerations uh, that we need to look at first.
4: This has been such a heartbreaking, difficult reality for Indigenous women uh, and their families across this country for quite some time, as you know. Will this alert system address the roots of the problems?
8: Well, you know, this is something that's been called on for a long time from families and advocates. And we know through the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, particularly Calls for Justice 9.1 to uh, 9.11, the current systems that are in place are not adequately responding should we find a loved one uh, goes missing or even in in cases uh, of murder. You know, in May, I put forward a unanimous a consent motion in the House of Commons uh, on behalf of advocates and family members to recognize uh, the crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls uh, and gender diverse people as a Canada-wide emergency uh, calling for the immediate implementation of a red dress alert. It was supported unanimously, which tells me that all members of Parliament recognize that this is a national crisis. That requires an urgent response, including an immediate implementation of a red dress alert. Should we go missing, we must be found. We know with Amber Alerts with Children in Canada that 90% of kids that go missing are found. And we're hoping for the same results uh, when we are able to put in a red dress alert.
4: Marion Buller, the former chief commissioner into the national inquiry, which wrapped in 2019, has said, quote, starting consultation, some four and a half five years later, indicates to me a lack of political will to actually take some firm action to help deal with the genocide that we so clearly identified in our final report, unquote. How would you, Leah, characterize the political will right now?
8: Well, you know, I think I've been really clear on it. You know, I voted against the fall economic statement because they didn't even mention uh, MMIWG2S in the fall economic statement. You know, let's remember this current Prime Minister called the crisis and murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls 2 spirit and gender-diverse people an ongoing genocide. Well, if you acknowledge something as a genocide, you would think that the government would act uh, more swiftly. We're now over four years out. I agree with former Commissioner Buller. Uh, I'm glad uh, that we're working towards a red-dress alert, but let me be clear, I will not stop pushing the Liberal government to make sure that this is not another broken promise and make sure that we get a red dress alert as quickly as possible. Mm
4: -hmm. Are you concerned then that after all this work, after all this time and after these consultations you won't get the system?
8: Well, I'm feeling like this is very promising. Uh, I feel the new minister, uh, Minister Gary Anasangri, is moving quickly on it since his appointment. Uh, this certainly uh, seems to be one of his priorities. I do feel hopeful, but I'm not going to ca- count my uh, eggs until they're hatched, right? Uh, and I'm going to keep pushing uh, on the Liberal government to uh, make sure that we get this uh, red dress alert uh, system as quickly as possible. There needs to be a clear end date for the consultations and I'm hoping that it happens early in the new year that we get this red dress alert at least a pilot in place.
4: What kinds of conversations have you had or what have you heard from, from families who have lost loved ones about how they're doing? Well, I mean,
8: this is a really difficult process. And, you know, one of the reasons we are going slowly in terms of preliminary uh, discussions because these consultations need to be uh, trauma informed. You know, indigenous uh, women, girls, two spirit and gender diverse people have been failed by this government and former federal governments, the provincial governments, municipal governments. You know, I think this has provided a bit of hope. Uh, in the community, and and the federal government needs to do whatever they need to do to not break another promise, this must happen, and it must happen uh, early in the new year.
4: There have been calls as well uh, to include Indigenous men and boys in this system, is that something that's come up so far in your consultations?
8: You know what, we know the crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous men and boys is a crisis as well in this country. Uh, We're doing consultations right now for women, girls, two-spirit and gender-diverse folks. You know, we have different considerations to put in place Uh, for example maybe uh, a woman doesn't want to be found who's fleeing uh, domestic violence for example I fully support putting in an alert system for Indigenous men and boys and I think it needs to be done mindfully so that whatever happens in the end for in both instances is helpful and not harmful and does what it needs to do to protect people
4: two, three, maybe even five years down the line, if this alert system were to exist. How do you think it will change this country or help people?
8: Well, I think if it saves one life, then we've won. You know, our lives are precious. The fact that this crisis has now garnered international attention is an embarrassment to Canada. Uh, And I think this is, you know, true for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Uh, Indigenous uh, Canadians. You know, this government uh, and former governments have committed to acts of reconciliation, finding us and making sure that we are safe is the least that they can do on the road to reconciliation. That is the bare minimum. We're at a critical juncture in history and we need to respond swiftly if we're going to move this country in the way that we need to towards true reconciliation.
4: Leah Gazan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me.
3: That was the NDP MP for Winnipeg Centre, Leah Gazan. Yesterday marked an auspicious occasion, the birthday of the oldest land animal on the planet. Or at least, that was the day chosen to celebrate it. No one's sure when his actual birthday was, and Jonathan himself doesn't know or care. Jonathan is a tortoise, and he is now 191 years old, with his birth year estimated as 1832, 35 years before John A. Macdonald became the first Prime Minister of Canada. Jonathan has lived through the reigns of eight British monarchs, 40 American presidents, and 11 months of George Santos in Congress, as well as his entire illustrious volleyball career. Last year around this time, Neil spoke to his caretaker, Teeny Lucy, on the island of St. Helena, where he resides. At the time, both Ms. Lucy and Jonathan were coming down from the highs of an extended celebration of his 190th birthday.
4: Three days of hard partying, teeny. How's Jonathan doing? How's he recovering?
9: Well, he's fine. I I have to be honest, he's had more food this week than he's had for a long time because normally he gets his supplementary food on a Sunday. Um, And obviously this week um, we've had so many, um, well, particularly BBC interviews and others. Uh, He's been live on breakfast TV Mm -hmm. all over the place. Um, And and so he has received uh, a lot of extra uh, fruit and veg this week. And it described him as a mature tortoise and gave his dimensions, and we've measured his dimensions, and they are exactly the same. So that was right. He was a mature tortoise when he came, and um, the Seychelles giant tortoise is matures around 50. So we took it from 50 years old. He could be a bit older. We just don't know, really.
4: So Jonathan is a Seychelles giant tortoise. Is it common for them to live this long?
9: Well, they do and can live quite happily to about 150. That has been documented. So um, I suppose Jonathan's really um, pushed the boat out as far as that <laughs> is concerned. But they are long-lived. But in the Seychelles, of course, the weather is, um, is is more consistently warm, and they do a lot of breeding.
4: So are you saying the yeah. key to, to Jonathan's success is vegetables, <laughs> sex, and sunshine? <laughs>
9: yes and maybe maybe um a cold period of um, semi hibernation as well <laughs>
4: okay. noted noted but you you know Jonathan very very well now you've been caring caring for him for about a decade, so what's he like
9: mm. oh he's a he's a charming old gentleman, he really <laughs> is um yeah he really is he's 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 a real icon on the island um he He's very benign, um, he was very shy to start with, but because we've been feeding hand-feeding him for all these years, he really has um, got to know, particularly myself and the vets, but um, he he's nearly blind, he's got pretty bad cataracts now, so we're sh- pretty sure he can only see shadows, and he doesn't have a sense of smell anymore. Um, yeah, so he recognises, we think, our voices, we're sure he does. 'Cause I only have to go into the paddock and talk and he, he he gravitates towards my voice and starts walking towards me. It's only because he associates both myself and the vet with food and that's the only reason he does it. <laughs> what has he taught you? Oh, patience more than anything else, I think. Um you can't hurry you can't <laughs> hurry a tortoise, that's for sure. <laughs> um, turtles, tortoises, they don't move fast. And they don't they, they you know, they contemplate Everything. And I, I suppose it's, it, it's, it's um, yeah, it, when I go up there, it definitely reduces the anxiety that you might be feeling. And um, it's a slower pace of everything. And I, I think it isn't a bad thing at all, actually.
4: Yeah. <laughs> as as his caretaker, what do you need to do? What's the best thing you need to do to get him to 200
9: well, we need to continue the way we're going for sure because it is very obvious that this extra nutrition has made a big difference to him. He's really, you know, lively now. He marches across the paddock and um, he's put weight weight back on and his beak is nice and sharp and um, he's eating extremely well. So I guess we just have to continue this way, really. I mean, in the old days, before people knew any better, and there are black and white pictures showing this you know governors and governors children and visitors used to ride on these tortoises um the kids would stand on their backs and the big adults would sit on them and i mean that must have been so incredibly stressful for them um so we try not to do anything like that that's going to upset them and um you know, you can tell when a tortoise gets upset because they 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 grow up onto their legs. You know, they stand right up on high on their legs, and um, and and then they can crash back down to the floor and then stand back up and keep keep doing that, which um, is a sort of warning, really. And uh, we try and avoid all of that stress with all of them if we can.
4: And I've never seen yeah. a, a stressed out turtle or tortoise, for that matter. Just you know what we I didn't ask. I think it was
9: possible. <laughs> no, because they're so
4: <laughs> laid back. Uh, just don't push them. <laughs> how just how no. large? How large is Jonathan?
9: Well, I, I've ne- I haven't actually measured him myself, and I don't actually know the dimensions. But I guess he must be in weight anyway. He's around two hundred kilos, I would think. Wow!
4: And how you know? I know you boy. mentioned his his cataracts, and you know there are some signs of aging. But how did he react to all of the celebrations? This multi-day party?
9: Well, um, he was Jonathan, really, to be honest with you. I mean, I had to go out there um, uh, on three, all three days, actually, going to, to, into the paddock with him and hand-feed him in front of cameras and so on and um, people taking photographs of press and everything. And he just behaves the way he always does. Um, we have noticed that sometimes... He almost feels as if he's playing to the camera, but we can't be up sure. <laughs> but um, no, he—he's great. He doesn't sort of wander off, or or um, he just stays with you. Yeah, he's yeah. great.
4: Oh, he's been there and done and, that um, for 190 years. He
9: has. He, I don't. Yeah, exactly. Teeny, thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, no problem.
3: That was an encore presentation of Neil's conversation with Teeny Lucy, caretaker of Jonathan the tortoise, the oldest living land animal who just turned 191 yesterday. We reached her on the island of St. Helena.
4: James, how does one react when when they see the first ever photographic evidence of Attenborough's long-beaked echidna?
3: Now that was Neil talking to biologist James Kempton last month after his expedition to the Cyclops Mountains in Indonesia led to the discovery of a remarkable creature, Attenborough's long-beaked echidna, which was thought to be extinct. And when I say the echidna was remarkable, I mean that Neil and Mr. Kempton remarked on it many times.
2: No. Pictures of echidna. I clicked on it and there was the echidna. What did
4: they tell you about what echidnas mean to them. The
2: echidna plays a part in a. The echidna. The echidna. The long echidna. The bit like an echidna. 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 Okay. Ashenborough's long beet echidna. The echidna.
3: Look, echidnas are great. They're cute little snouts, their little button eyes, their little four-headed penises. I don't have time to explain that. But in our zest to explore every single aspect of the echidna discovery, we paid short shrift to another important discovery made on that same dangerous expedition. Or should I say, short shrimped.
2: The focus was not just on the echidna, but discovering other new species to yes, science.
3: That was my next question. Tell, tell us
4: about those those tiny maybe some would say creepy discoveries let's not editorialize maybe they're cute to some people <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah we we discovered we've so far discovered because the work is not complete two new species of frog to, two new mm-hmm. species of science of frog uh, dozens of new insect species and even a shrimp that lives on land and and, and on trees uh, it's so wet in the rainforest that shrimps are able to survive there that's, in fact, not only a new species, but a new genus of shrimp.
3: Uh, Ronald, can we just hear that last bit again, please?
2: <coughs> Even a shrimp that lives on land and, and, and on trees.
3: That's right. At last, the breakthrough we've been dreaming of, sometimes literally, tree shrimp. As you heard Mr. Kempton say, it's so unbelievably humid in the rainforest of the Cyclops Mountains that those little crustaceans can live on land and up in the canopy. They're always damp, but unlike their shrimp cousins, they're never entirely immersed in water, which means those tree shrimp have adopted a new way to breathe. We don't know much about them beyond that. What do they taste like? How did they wind up in the middle of a forest? Are they delicious? How does their respiration work? How delicious are they? What we do know is that they're as remarkable as any echidna, and we need to know more about them. So a new expedition should be lunched. <laughs> Sorry, did I say lunched? I meant lunched.